Muslim Chat presents Heroes of Islam, a 30-part series on the lives of some of the greatest Muslims to walk this earth. So for today we'll go on talking about someone from a bit of the latter times, not from the Salaf as we were talking about before. He is mentioned alongside Salahuddin al-Ayyubi a lot, but he's not uh, given much attention yet. Without him there would be no Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. Some of the ulama like Abu Shama al-Maqdisi, they said that him and Salahuddin al-Ayyubi were like Abu Bakr and Umar among the Sahaba. So this man is Nur al-Din Zinki. And what he did was basically what Abu Bakr did with the Sahaba. He fixed the internal affairs. Then when Umar came after, he dealt with the external affairs and fought the enemies and conquered lands. And that's how what Salahuddin al-Ayyubi did as well. Imad al-Din al-Zinki. And the name al-Zinki comes from his grandfather who was a Turkish or was from the Turkish origin and he was also a friend of the famous uh, Malik Shah Al-Parsalan. He was born in the year 511 after Hijra and died in 569 after Hijra so he only lived 58 years. As he was growing up he was trained in the battlefield and learned about art and warfare and also memorized the Quran and was fond of reading about the books. By his madhab, he was Hanafi and in the year 541 after Hijra, so when he becomes 30 years old, his father, Imaduddin, passes away. Then he becomes the next king in line. So what happens early on is that there's a lot of fitna and fasad in the Muslim ummah at that time. The Baqaniya and the Ismailis, they are in influence, influential in the land. So they did a lot of weird practices like... Uh, introduce words to the Adhan, praising Ali in the Adhan, and a lot of attacks against Ahlul Sunnah and killing them in Egypt and all over the Muslim lands. So what Nur al-Din Zinki did, first of all, is he ordered that all of his soldiers be of the righteous caliber. And the thing with Nur al-Din Zinki is it's as if he read the history of all of the people before him and took some characteristics from all of them. So his governance was modeled after Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. His zuhud was like Hassan al-Basri. His uh, use of, or should I say, the way he would act in certain ways was based on how Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak acted. Like he would do a certain deed because the Quran. Another uh, thing about him was that he had this habit from his mid-twenties, we could say that, he would go to sleep after Isha for about half the night, and then the other half of the night he would spend in Tahajjud till Fajr. Early on in his life, what would happen is that when he just became the ruler, that sometimes he would lose some wars. So the ulama would tell him, How can you win when your soldiers are drinking alcohol? And how can you be like in a position of victory when you oppress people? because of all of the taxes and everything that was implemented. So the first thing he did at that moment was abolish all of the unlawful taxation that was created by kings before him, just as Umar ibn Abdul Aziz did beforehand. 
but then at certain times he would impose a small amount of extra tax and then when there was not needed he would get rid of it and then he would go to the people and say i apologize for the tax that i gave you or the tax i imposed upon you that was not from the sharia so it was not from jizya or kharaj but it was because our soldiers needed it in jihad so we had to use some kind of extra wealth now let us look at some of his insights and some of the ways he dealt with this dunya and how he looked at the events around him. So there was a prince in his time, his name was Bahad, Baha al-Din al-Ali ibn As-Sakari or Sukkari. This is the one day me and Nuruddin were, you know, in jihad in the battlefield and we were racing our horses and the sun was behind us and the shadows were in front of us. So we were going towards the battlefield. And in the evening, we were heading back and the sun was in front of us and the shadows behind us. So Nuruddin said something interesting to him that Hassan al-Basri beforehand had said as well. He said, do you see our situation? The way these shadows are is just like how this worldly life is. When we were running towards them, we couldn't catch them. But when we run from them, we catch they catch us. So it's like the dunya, when you run towards it, you can't catch it. But if you run away from it, it catches you. Also from the noble things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to his righteous slaves is a dua that is answered. And this is from the hadith that from the few whose duas are answered is a just ruler. So a dilemma appeared at a time that he can, the, the Frankish people, they were fighting. And this is the crusaders, obviously. They were fighting against the Muslimin. And so Nuruddin had captured the king and he was thinking, maybe I should ransom him and get lots of money, right? So all of the people around him said, no, don't do this because he's so influential. If he were to get back into the ranks, he will definitely attack. So Nuruddin, you know, he went and he made dua and he prayed istikhara and he had an intuition that, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and free him and take a lot of ransom money. So what happened was, that he freed him and got a lot of money. Now, as soon as the king reaches his own homeland, he ends up dying. So then all the people around him were amazed and they said, SubhanAllah, Allah gave you two rewards in one action. And with this money, Nuruddin built a hospital and that was one of the biggest and the best hospital in the entire Muslim Ummah at the time. Despite being a great king, like all of the great heroes of Islam, he was a utmost humility. So it was a common practice amongst the Khatibs that they would always praise the kings and the rulers and the member. They would always make dua for them. So Nuruddin told them to not do this because I'm just a man, I'm normal. Don't, you know, single me out for praise. But just make general dua for the Muslimin everywhere. He was once asked about, you know, the Islamic Sharia, the law of Islam and how we thought of it. He said, our entire life is based on it and our entire life should be for sacrificing and striving for it. So his entire life was just based upon struggling for the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just like Umar ibn Abdul Aziz beforehand, he had a very close connection with the ulama and he would not do anything, even if he thought it was permissible, except with the consultation and the ijtihad of the ulama around him. 
So there was some jealousy that started to come from the kings and the noblemen around him that, you know, he honors these ulama, these in their mind, normal people or everyday awam. So why, why is that the case, right? So one day a king, one of the Muslim kings of the other land, he came over and uh, started to belittle and speak ill of Qutb al-Din and Naisaburi. So Nur al-Din got a bit angry at him and he's like, why do you, you know, criticize him? He has two qualities that make up for all of his mistakes and those are knowledge and taqwa. And he says, you kings, you have nothing that these ulama have. You don't even have the least of the good qualities of Qutb al-Din. Yet I'm patient with you over all your faults. And yet you expect me to not be patient with them for over some sin or some small deed of theirs. Another time when they used to start to backbite and speak ill of them because as human, everyone has faults. He would say to them, why do you backbite these righteous people? No one is infallible, but they're still better than you. One of his uh, du'as that he would always repeat was, you know, oh Allah, give me shahada. But he never attained shahada. And interestingly, just as there is a story narrative that when Khalid ibn al-Walid was on his deathbed and he was, you know, saying, I wish I could get shahada. And the man says, you know, you're this word of Allah. And if you were to die, a lot of harm would come to the Ummah. So anyways, when... Nur al-Din was on his deathbed. He was also saying some similar words and he was like, I really wished I had gotten shahada. So there was the same imam who was his friend as well a bit. He was sitting with him, Qutb al-Din al-Naisaburi, and he said to him that, you know, Islam, you are the backbone for Islam and Muslims. If you were killed, then we would be invaded. We would have no leader that would be willing to fight and defend our lands. So Nur al-Din, he said to him, you know, what is this like? Basically, what is all of this rubbish you're saying that, you know, I'm not that great. Then he said, there is one who saved Islam before me, and he is the Allah Almighty. La ilaha illahu. Now, a little bit of an interesting thing. Uh, in our time, it's always like, you know, the stress and the importance on ibadah and personal act of worship, which have their importance, of course. But then he said later on in his life, Nur al-Din, you know, he wanted to isolate himself for some time and do some ibadat and make dua and gain some extra help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they said for about 30 to 40 days, he was in isolation and he had a dream at the end of this time that the Prophet wasallam came to him in his dream and says, have you abandoned jihad for this? So at that moment, Nur al-Din Zinki realized, okay, you know, this is not what I was supposed to do and that the real ibadat is on the battlefield. It's in jihad and ribaq. There's a lot of things he did, like defending the borders. But the main point in him is that he looked at the lives of all of the earlier people and tried to take some good from each of them, which he could. He couldn't be the best in every field, and he couldn't be like Ibn Mubarak and have all the good deeds that one could possibly attain. Nor could it be like Umar ibn Abdulaziz and, you know, rule such a large land and do what he did. But he tried his best to take what he could from them. And in his time, it was a situation similar to our time. Nur al-Din Zinki did not have many supporters when he started out. 
His father had just recently captured the city of Edessa and just, just gotten some control there. It was quite a big victory for the Muslim in also They would say, our reply is war to you and the Franks will help us against you. Nur al-Din was trapped from all ends, and the only one he had was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his soldiers. It is narrated that uh, his brother, in in a battle, he lost one of his eyes. So Nur al-Din said to him, if you knew the reward that is in this deed, you know, in jihad, losing an eye or losing a limb, if you knew the reward of this, then you would wish you had lost the other eye as well. And this from the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, that the shuhada on the day of judgment they would come with their wounds bleeding but smelling like musk and they would be a proof for them in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From his du'as was a specific du'a that he would say, Oh Allah, resurrect me on Yom Al-Qiyamah from the, from the stomachs of the green birds. So the way he, would, he was making du'a for shahada but in a way that he would like get from the hadith. He also used to recite the Quran a lot, the Hajjad, and would always have private times as well in the night for himself to do personal ibadah. What his general habit was when he would return home was that he would, you know, sit and talk with his family for a bit. And then, you know, he would go into his private chamber and ask for any kind of like parchments or letters that are sent from his officials to look after the needs of the Ummah. And this is like Umar ibn Abdul Aziz as well, you know would always like be concerned with the state of the ummah. Despite having a large sum of wealth at his disposal, and if he wanted, he could become like the other kings and have palaces and rich lives and stuff. But no, he took nothing from the Baytul Man except what was absolutely necessary. But before becoming ruler, since he already had a bit of a business going on, he would, you know, sustain himself from there. The thing with Nur al-Din was that his haiba used to frighten people, so even his own wife wouldn't even come to him and you know, say we're in a bit of hardship. So one day she sent somebody to go to Nur al-Din and say, you know, tell him to give me some extra money because I'm in a bit of hardship. So this man came and sent this to Nur al-Din and he became a bit mad and he said, you know, I don't want to enter the fire of hell just because of her greed. said, I have three shops in Hama. I gift them to her and give her like, ownership of them. She can take all the wealth from them. That's hers. And this is just like what happened with Umar ibn Abdul Aziz and Fatima ibn Abdul Malik that you said to you know, choose between your jewelry and your wealth or me. Now the main crux of his life is that he did not have a lot of great people around him in his time. He had like, you know, fitna and facade everywhere like our time. But he had role models from history. He made his life based on them. And this is what we can take from his life. Allah have mercy on him. Reward him for his good. Grant him for those al-a'la. And may Allah give us more like him. We always wish for someone like Salah Adin But we forget we need a Nur al-Din Zinki to fix the internal affairs and control the internal problems before we can go out and combat the external problems. May Allah give us a tawfiq to follow in the footsteps of the righteous like him and make them our role models. I mean, with that we conclude. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika ashadu wa la ilaha illa ant.
This was produced by the Muslim Chat Discord server, the best online forum run on the principles of the Quran and Sunnah. Find out more and join now at www.muslim.chat.com.